Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. Uh, it gives me great pleasure on this evening's podcast uh, to be speaking to my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. David McIntosh. David, thanks very much for doing this. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Derek. Um, for those who haven't heard of David McIntosh, and I think that's very few people in the dental industry because he's been at the forefront of teaching dentists how to uh, do uh, early uh, uh, recognition and screening of uh, kids and adults who have uh, snoring and sleep apnea problems. But David McIntosh was trained uh, as a, in e-nose and throat surgery by the South Australian Advanced Surgical Training Program. He undertook further training overseas at the Starship Children's Hospital in Auckland in New Zealand, and he specialised there in childhood enos and throat problems. Um, he has extensive research experience in the field of enos and throat, and in fact, his PhD thesis relates to the healing of the nasal lining after sinus surgery. I know David's published um, uh, numerous uh, articles in peer-reviewed enos and throat journals, and he's presented on a number of enos and throat topics throughout Australia and overseas, uh, in particular on some of the dental formats. Uh, and it's uh, David who's really been at the forefront of awakening dentists that uh, they have a crucial role uh, in checking uh, the airway. Um, David, that's an impressive CV, but can I just start by talking about your book, which um, I had the fortune of reading uh, about a year ago, and I pass it on to a lot of my colleagues, but I also recommend it to a lot of my patients. And for those who haven't read this book, um, I, I know it is, it is available on Amazon. Correct, David? That, that is correct. And, um, and it's got a Kindle edition. That's the one I had. And it's just simply called Snored to Death, which might be an, uh, an alarming. It sounds like a, 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 a if you didn't know, it was about breathing and engines. It sounds like a great uh, spy novel, doesn't it? It um, does. So the the intro of this, um, and I'm reading it straight um, from the bio on uh, on Amazon. In in the same amount of time it will take you to read this book, approximately eight billion people should have had a good night's sleep. Unfortunately, about one and a half billion people every night are not getting good quality sleep, and this is for the simple reason they've had some form of blockage to their breathing. If you thought snoring was just a noise and a nuisance, by the time you've read this book, you will be thinking very differently. From consequences such as brain damage to blindness, snoring is a sign of serious oxygen deprivation. Can we start with that? Uh, as uh, what, what motivated you to write the book, Dave? So th- th- thank you for bringing the book up because it, it was one of my sort of great, strong passions to be able to share my knowledge in a way that uh, brings uh, this, this topic to the forefront. And the, uh, you know, the motivation uh, and, and impetus to do it was, was obviously from my clinical experience coming across so many people, uh, both adults and children alike, families 
who were oblivious to the fact that snoring was actually a sign of a significant underlying medical condition. And, and it really just also uh, reflects on the fact that sleep in general is something that uh, the medical community and the, the general population possibly don't pay uh, enough uh, sense and credibility to with regards to the importance of good sleep uh, and the importance also of good breathing. And if there's any aberrations in either of those, or, or certainly when the two align, that the marked health consequences that can flow uh, from that being the case. And I had to put it in a, in a, in a manner that was readable as a, a medical uh, reference, but also something really that the public could read. And, and as the introduction uh, that you've given but also flows into the rest of the book, anyone that reads this book, by the time they've finished reading that book, they will probably know more about this topic than their medical doctors do, uh, their, their GPs. And that's not a criticism of the GPs as more just a, a reflection and in a way a criticism of the education because of the, firstly, the, the lack of education, the lack of appreciation, the lack of importance uh, that is centred around sleep, which is something that we spend one third of our lives actually doing physically. You know, when people talk about health, they always talk about diet and exercise and, and mental well-being, but, but sleep is an integral component for all three of those things. And it's a major pillar uh, that supports those things as well. Matt, one of the independent reviews of your book says, um, never before has a book been written that comprehensively covers this topic, and never before has this topic been presented in a format suited for both the health professional and the general public. So that's a, I, mean, I know what it's like, um, you know, if you're preparing a lecture for the lay audience versus uh, your colleagues, it's, it's totally different, but you seem to have pulled it off in, in, in this book. Um, can I can I start by asking you, um, and I, actually, I remember something. I know when you won, and excuse me if I'm wrong, but the Optus um, Business Award, uh, is that right? Yeah. That's, that's um, right. Yep. I remember sitting at your table and um, someone else from another table uh, was asking, you know, why are you here and blah, blah, blah. And you got to the topic of snoring. And, and that lady said, look, um, I don't know what's funnier, my son who snores or my husband, and we have a contest to see who's worse. Um, and it kind of felt like she thought it was just a jovial thing. Do you want to? I, I remember, I remember your your reaction uh, uh, and 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 how nicely you you spoke to that lady to sort of educate her. But that's a common um, misconception. Do you want to start with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think again, this is a community society reflection, uh, and it's not a criticism. But uh, and and it's depicted uh, throughout, like. Uh, if you look at movies, for example, you know, snoring is depicted as part of a, a comedic element of the movie. Um, you might have the person uh, sharing the room or the bed with them that's getting absolutely frustrated and, and besides themselves. Um, and uh, it's, it then sort of flows on, you know, as you've relayed to, um, it's just like, oh, gosh, that, you know, the son really takes after dad, don't they? Just like, you know, not just the looks, but, oh, my gosh, the snoring. And and again, this comes down to, to perception. But what I'm trying to do, uh, and why I chose specifically that 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 title of that book, um, and it was actually a play on words because we have this thing called bored to tears, and you know I'm bored to death. So, you know, I've got nothing to do. I'm bored to death. So so it is snored to death, and it, but it is actually a literal uh, event that's happening because what's going on with snoring is it's a sign that there's some form of airway obstruction. 
And as I have in the book, as an analogy, if someone was going into your child's room at night and physically choking them every night, there is nothing that any parent would view as being comedic with respect to that event. The problem is that the child is the one that's choking themselves. There's actually no difference. Instead of being choked from the outside, they're being choked from the inside. So, you know, that really needs to be, and, and you know, pun intended, a wake-up call yeah. and a call to arms to have a, a whole recalibration of the perception of snoring. And it doesn't just stop at snoring, but, you know, mouth breathing is actually another element of this uh, spectrum as well. And get parents to realise that any sign of, of snoring represents an obstruction that then in turn represents a deprivation of oxygen to the brain. And the sadness that I have is the poor ability that we've had as a medical health community in getting this information out there. Uh, as I've sort of said on, on my uh, social media you know, posts, for example, just because it's contemporary, if we had a virus that came out all of a sudden into the community that resulted in behavioural problems, learning problems, brain damage in 20% of children, we would be absolutely doing everything we could to contain that infection and look for a cure. The problem is we have that same condition in, in that same proportion of children, uh, but the, the attention and care is, is, is absolutely lacking in the mainstay. So I, I talk about having ambassadors so that every, every parent uh, that I come across with every child that I fix, uh, I, I want them to pass, basically pass the baton of knowledge and pass the baton of experience on because I don't hold against them in any way that their initial ignorance and uh, you know, oblivious nature to the situation uh, was present. But once your eyes are opened, you then have to realise that there's certainly going to be another one of your friends, another parent out there that you know that has a child in the same boat. And that parent is going to have the same lack of knowledge. And that's where we can start to build these bridges, increase this network of knowledge and slowly but surely turn around the perception so that uh, people actually realise that, you know, snoring is is actually not the joke that we should be making it out at a healthcare level. Um, it has a role, you know, in a comedic sense, and I don't think we should get take ourselves too seriously and lose sense of that. But there's a time and a place, and and certainly there's there's no role for it in the real world with respect to um, you know children and adults alike that have an airway obstruction. And um, you know, I get a lot of mums who kind of ask me, look, I know my kid's not sleeping well, and um, uh, you know, I point out to them when I do my oral exam i said look look at the size of your kids tonsils they're almost kissing each other which you and i know is grade four but to a parent you know just just them uh, having a look and uh and then they say things like um well you know my gp said unless i get uh x numbers of tonsillitis a year it doesn't warrant um referral it doesn't warrant surgery you want to comment a bit on that uh david because that's a big yeah. misconception amongst parents it, it, it well and, and healthcare providers alike as as, as you've referenced so that's a really good question, and I think uh, the the way that I sort of want to explain this is to dumb down what I do as an ear, nose, and throat into very simple terms. So broadly speaking and simply speaking, 80% of the time as an ear, nose, and throat doctor, 
I'm doing an intervention for whatever cause uh, for either obstruction or infection or both. So if I was to change it, for example, someone had a blocked nose, we don't wait for them to get sinus infections to go and unblock their nose. You know, they could have had, you know, a broken nose. So they had some form of trauma. Uh, their nose has been broken. They have what's called deviated septum. They can't breathe properly. So when we do that, we have no qualms about, oh, you know, we would never say, oh, you've never had a sinus infection. You're not getting a nose infection. So don't worry about it. You know, that person can't breathe properly and they know they can't breathe properly and not being able to breathe properly causes problems. So it's very much the same thing with respect to children and breathing uh, when it comes to tonsils. In fact, what we don't want to happen is we don't want to wait for those children to start getting tonsillitis because those tonsils are going to swell up even more. You know, it's, 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 you're actually waiting for something that's already a problem to get worse, which doesn't make any sense. And when we look at the numbers, so from us, I'm an ear, nose and throat surgeon, but I'm a subspecialist in paediatric ENT. And that is an important distinction because there's plenty of ENTs, which is absolutely fine, that do paediatrics, but they're not technically subspecialty trained. Um, you know, we have like, for example, um, you know, in the, the your orthodontic dental community, you have your dentists that do orthodontics, which is absolutely fine. But, you know, as a specialist, there's just those times where, it, you know, it is a specialist case, mm-hmm. uh, a specialist knowledge that's needed where, you know, we sort of help our colleagues um, that, that are there to do those those harder cases and scenarios. And it's through that subspecialty training that, you know, I'm really quite in, in tune with this. So what I find in my clinic is that roughly speaking, 80 to 90% of the times that I'm removing a tonsil, uh, you know, tonsils from a child, they do not have any history of tonsillitis whatsoever. Okay. And that's pretty consistent among the subspecialty pediatric ENT clinics. Uh, and, you know, in any sort of question that's raised, whether it be in a, a healthcare setting of a general practitioner or even a, a general ENT, um, if, if the feedback or the reference point is the lack of tonsillitis in a child that has signs, uh, you know, evidence of large tonsils, then it probably is worth just pausing for a moment and just seeking that further level of knowledge, further level experience, and just make sure that things aren't uh, being overlooked and dismissed in a scenario where, in fact, that child does actually need help, does need assistance, uh, and it's forthcoming from someone that's um, more aligned to um, this this level of knowledge. You know, um, sometimes I shake my head when that kid with the grade four tonsils um, and I say, look, you need to go and see an Eno's and throat doctor like yesterday. And the other mum goes, no, 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 we want to see uh, Dr. Jones because he's our family doctor and we trust him and he's been our family doctor for 100 years. Um, and then, you know, they come back saying, look, they said there's nothing wrong because the kid's only seven and he'll outgrow his tonsils. You want to make a comment on that because I hear that a lot. Yeah, look, and I think that's a very um, good thing to raise and, and hopefully I can do a good explanation of this. So what that does is that stems from some research that was done in the 1920s by a person called Scammell. And there's this, what's called Scammell's Curve. And, and what he did is he basically looked at body organs, including what we call lymph tissue, which is, which is part of this system, uh, and, and made the observation that over the passage of time, is that the, the growth curve of the lymph tissue was that it would increase at the, about the age of three. 
peak at around about the age of six and then start to regress and get smaller and dissipate uh, significantly by the age of 12. So that's what people are referencing in terms of they'll outgrow it, just looking at that growth curve. But what's missed in that conversation is that that's the growth curve of normal tonsils and normal adenoids. Tonsils and adenoids that get big to the point that they cause airway obstruction are not normal tonsils and not normal adenoids. So what we're doing is we're applying the wrong knowledge with respect to the situation in front of us. Uh, it, it, it's not the right thing. And I use the analogy, it's kind of like saying, well, look, if you break your arm, they'll outgrow the fracture. And that's actually true. You know, if you, if you break your arm and you don't set it properly and you just leave it be, it'll knit together. It'll be pretty rough and that child will probably have a deformity and have problems, you know, with that limb forever and a day because it wasn't sorted out properly. And it's no different to airway obstruction. Uh, when we've looked at airway obstruction, when we look at, you know, the concept of the mouth growing them, and we do notice in a cohort, you know, the, the, you know, the mouth breathing or the snoring or the sleep apnea might go away. And we think, oh, that's great. But then we actually look at look, what were the actual functional outcomes. So we're looking at things such as what's their school performance like? How, what's their behavior and temperament like? What's their emotional regulation like? Uh, what are their brain scans like? And what we're finding is that all those things are still amiss. So the, the fact that they outgrew the underlying sort of presenting symptoms of, of snoring or mouth breathing, for example, doesn't mitigate against the fact that they're actually left with permanent brain damage. And, and what we've found ultimately, and this is not unusual with any healthcare condition, the earlier you find it and the earlier you fix it, the less the repercussions down the track. And, you know, I, I know you know um, uh, Professor David Gazal quite well, and uh, you and I have had chats with him. I mean, you know, parents kind of understand the term IQ, do you want to sort of um, uh, comment on what percentage of IQ is actually lost every year? This kid is not sleeping well, not breathing well. Absolutely. So what what we know, and, and, and you mentioned David Gazal, who, who, who is a fabulous uh, pediatric clinician in the United States, uh, who, who really um, brought this back into the conversation. And he did so by a very simple mean. He, he went to his local school board and he just basically had a survey for the bottom 10% of children academically in that school cohort. And, and it was very simple to the question to the parents, does your child snore and stop breathing at night? Extremely simple question to ask a parent. And often parents are unaware of the answer to that question because the parents put the kids to bed and then walk away and that's the end of the story. Yeah. So in that, in that scenario that I've explained uh, where the child's parents then observed things and they said, oh, yes, they do. Those children were then uh, given the opportunity to be assessed by an ENT and where appropriate had surgery. 12 months later, none of those children that were uh, found and identified and managed in the way I've described with um, the tonsil and adenoid surgery, none of those children were in the bottom 10% of their class. Wow. That's a massive turn. You think about, you know, the, 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 the efforts that a lot of parents go to to invest in the best education that they feel that, they you know, they can offer their children, um, you know, and the child's struggling, they'll start getting the tutors in and so forth. And no one's asked about the breathing. No one's asked about the sleep. And when we talk about IQ, you know, we sort of talk about 100 sort of being the average um, for, you know, the general sort of population, then you have, you know, variations thereof. Um, we think that children are losing about 15 IQ points 
um, just by virtue of the fact that they are not breathing and sleeping properly. Um, which and, and you know, they'll never really recover from that, will they? It's not as though if by 10 or 11 someone figures this out, that that damage that's caused, they're, they're, it's, it's not something that you can wait till later and then catch up on. Yeah. So, so what we've found uh, basically is there's two, great, two, two very simple dynamics um, that, that result in the, the sort of the long-term outcome. And it's not to say, look, that every child is going to suffer, but you know, we're, we're talking about averages here. So what we've found is that the earlier it starts in a child's life, the worse their outcomes. And the reason for that's very simple is because brain development is so dynamic in those early years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and the brain essentially needs two cru- crucial things. It needs sugar and it needs oxygen. And if it's missing the oxygen, the brain's misfiring. And that causes the damage and that damage, um, you know, over passage of time becomes permanent. And that's the second dynamic is time. And what we thought is, oh, yeah, look, we've got time to outgrow it. What we know now from, from multiple studies, and, you know, the one I saw, cite in particular is, is a researcher called Karen Bonnock, um, who published a paper where they, you know, in the UK, they looked at about 11,000 children over the course of the first seven years of their life. It's roughly six-month increments, and were asking about snoring and mouth breathing, and then did nothing, okay? So, you know, using the, oh, they'll outgrow it premise to see how that played out. By the age of seven, um, children that had had six months or more of some form of sleep disorder breathing, which is what we're talking about, snoring, mouth breathing, sleep apnea. It only took six months for the majority of those children to then demonstrate problems at the age of seven, even amongst the group of kids where they had inverted commas outgrown it. So we know that the earlier the starts, the worse it is, and the longer it goes, the worse it is, and it only takes six months. So there really needs to be a, a strong, proactive and, and expedient management as opposed to the complacency of don't worry, they'll outgrow it. That's permeated um, through the system. And look, it's, it's, it's a function and a feature of education, ultimately, at the end of the day. Um, but if you rely on what you were taught 20 or 30 years ago and don't recognise that advances and progresses are made, then you'll, you'll miss the boat in terms of these updates. So, um, you know, this is, this is where, you know, every, anything and everything that, that I, I, I know or I learn, I know can be replaced tomorrow by something new, different and novel. And that's the beautiful thing of what we do rather than the problem. But the challenge is being able to keep up. And again, and me, David, would, would most of the enos and throats be aware of all this? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer um, because I think, obviously, with your global audience, um, it would very be very sort of geographic. Um, I, I think, in, in part, with all due respect, there is some generational issues. So, the sort of the, the younger ish, and I'm, I'm still want to calling myself younger uh, generation, um, are, are more astute and more aware. Um, but at the same time, because they're, you know, certainly in those early years, you tend to have a very conservative approach, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll tend to be um, aware of the condition, but not quite so proactive about doing it just, you know, because of some hesitancies involved. Um, but certainly with the uh, more uh, senior, uh, you know, you know and, and great amount of experience, it uh, comes to the fact also then that a knowledge base that is more reflective of something that's been replaced. So I think we have a, you know, a, 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 a shifting of the tide with regards to knowledge and experience. Uh, we have 
a younger generation that have more knowledge about it, but because they don't quite have this that much experience, they're not as proactive. And then we have a generation that um, have a lot of experience, but it's based on previous paradigms, so they're not proactive for that that that's that side of things. So um, people like myself that are very proactive, very aware, um, very mindful of the science and the research, tend to sort of stand out uh, a little bit um, in terms of. Um, you know, being being viewed as as, as quite aggressive um, compared to the conservative ones, um, but I, you know, this is this is why I bring the science into the conversation, uh, and I can you know you know highlight. Look, you know, these are the brain scans that we have done on children. You know, any parent that that starts to appreciate this, and not in a confronting way, but you know, as a method of understanding everything, can then take that knowledge and board and go, hang on a sec. I was told this, but now it's that, and they can feel conflicted. That's where I think having the science helps so that it's not, um, you know, me just standing on my soapbox and, and, you know, shouting to the masses. It's like, no, 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 here's the science. Here's the information. This is why I'm so passionate about this topic. This is why I want your child to reach their full potential and why I want to use the skills and knowledge I have to explain and then, you know, you know, remedy the situation. It doesn't always involve surgery. It depends on the condition. You know, medication's got a role as well. But whatever the therapy is, um, and, you know, it's not always ENT. It's, it's dental, it's myofunctional therapy, it's allergies. You know, there's a whole range of things. Um, you know, whatever's appropriate for that individual, um, I just want to sort of use my, my knowledge as best I can to, impart that upon you know to the benefit of the parents of the child to really just open their eyes and start to join the dots so that they can understand you know why is their child tired why is their child cranky why is their child experiencing anxiety problems you know what what's why are they having feeding problems why are they having speech problems why are they having drawn orthodontic problems um and, and and being able to bring that all to the table so that um i can present it in a synthesized way that then it all starts to make sense and when they start to sort of have that presented to them, then they start to identify, you know, the, the chasms in knowledge and, and so forth, or, or, or maybe just the, the styles of explanation that I present um, that just helps them just be in a, a more confident and better position to, to understand why we do want to be proactive about these things. And um, yours is not the only profession. <laughs> if I look at my orthodontic profession, certainly some of the uh, more senior members, uh, the old school, I call them, uh, still believe that you should only start orthodontics when the kid has all the adult teeth. And both you and I know by then the damage is already done uh, and you have to pull out four teeth um, uh, just to straighten them up. And uh, if you haven't looked at the airway and you haven't looked at the breathing, I mean, straightening those teeth is a bit like rearranging the deck tears on the uh, Titanic. Uh, so yep. I feel for you in that regard. Um, yeah. Can I pose uh, just a, a question, uh, you know, quite left field? What happens if someone goes to see their doctor, their nose and throat, their dentist, whatever, and their tonsils and adenoids are okay, um, but the mum is still reporting their kid is not sleeping well and disruptive in school and blah, blah, blah. Can you talk us through that as an option? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and th- again, this is where that you know, higher sort of level of awareness and so forth can come to the floor and, and a better understanding. Because the, the paradigm, you know, that, you know, that we see is like it's all about tonsils and adenoids. And the reality is 80% of the time that is correct. So, if you know, if you were to give me a child and blindfold me and, and say, look, this kid, David, can't breathe properly, 
Um, you're not allowed to examine them. You're not allowed to take a history, um, but you are allowed to take their tonsils and adenoids out. Well, look, eight times out of 10, I'll actually help that child and sort them out. But we take a more sophisticated approach to that, of course. So there's other elements at play. Uh, so we want to know, look, what's going on inside the nose? Does this child have hay fever and allergy and swelling and congestion? Has this child has some form of trauma to their nose, whether it's from, for example, simple birth trauma or where they, um, you know, hit their nose playing sport or, or, or whatever, or even, you know, were they born, uh, you know, premature? and had nasal tubes put in their nose. And all those things relate to the fact that the, the middle portion of the nose, the septum can be crooked and be associated with airway problems. Also tied in with that, um, do they have jaw and orthodontic problems? You know, the, 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 the whole thing about jaw and teeth is, is not an ENT paradigm. You know, we're not dentists, we're not trained in these things. Um, and, and as a consequence of that, what you don't know, you don't see. So, you know, I see this because I, I, I've immersed myself in this conversation and experience. Um, and as I say, you know, and you sort of highlighted it, I, you know, I take a proactive role in educating dentists. To, to be honest, I'm there as the student. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to put things out there and then use it as a, as a wall for an echo to see what then comes back so that I can add to my skill and, add my, and my knowledge. You know, I was never taught about, you know, terminology such as intermolar width, um, which is, you know, as you know, speaking to the converted, is the distance between the back teeth, to keep it simple. It's, 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 that's not an ENT term. But, you, you know, your high arch palate, all these sort of phrases that are, are chalk and cheese from the dental community and orthodontic community don't really register. But, again, once it's seen, you can never unsee it. So the number of times that I see these children that, you know, it's not, you know, their tonsils and adenoids are fine, they don't have allergy, but their skeletal form is just completely divergent um and and dentists i think you know the the crucial player in the game well the dental team because you know you're a team of people doesn't always just be the dentist there's hygienists and therapists and, and the like um can spot these things um and and because of their knowledge and awareness they know that it's not always necessarily just jaw problems so they get the ent involved just to check the ent problems and the ent can fix their bits and the orthodontics can be managed but you know, it, it extends to tongue ties as well. Again, something that was never on my radar um, as, as, as an ENT, not even like during my pediatric ENT training, was that even close? But again, it was through that engagement initially with the dental community, you start to go, oh, you know, my eyes have just been opened, you know, and you sort of, you know, think about, you know, as a clinician doing what I do, I know, you know, knowing what I know now, I'm absolutely certain and adamant there's things that I missed um, you know, prior to having that knowledge. Um, but now I'm so vigilant for it. So I, I love upgrading my knowledge. I love developing my knowledge. Um, so, you know, and that's how this question can be answered is because I'm aware that it's not just tonsils and adenoids. It can be nasal allergies, you know, involve the allergy doctor or if they've got a crooked septum, you know, one of the things I was taught is, oh, you'd never operate on the, on the septum of a child. Um, when you actually look at why people were saying that, you know, it made sense. But when you actually looked at then when people bucked that trend and started doing it um, and having no problems, then you have to sort of question, well, look, you know, is, is what we're being taught correct? Um, I've been doing, uh, you know, nasal septal surgery in children since 2006 and not having any problems or any issues um, in, in terms of that being the case. And delivering, you know, a child that is breathing better and, and, and thriving better. So huge benefit, um, you know, in terms of what can be achieved. But 
you know, sometimes you just got to break the mold. And that I think, you know, it relates to orthodontics too. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, if you go back historically, orthodontics was all about jaw structure. Um, the straight teeth were nice, but it was about jaw structure and that helped the breathing. Um, and then it became about aesthetics and then it was all about, let's just get the teeth straightened. What's the quick, easy way to do that? And I think we really need to bring this concept of airway orthodontics um, into the mainstream. <coughs> I think, um, you know, having nice straight teeth is fantastic, but it's got to be laid in a foundation of good solid jaw structure. Uh, so again, you know, another paradigm that needs to change. And I think, you know, as my role as an ENT, I need to be able to feed that back to the dentist to sort of say, look, you know, you've definitely got some jaw orthodontic problems. We need to get that addressed and also explain it to the parents because the parents will sort of have that conflict of knowledge. And I say, well, look, they're probably just focusing on, you know, the, the, the straight teeth part. And that's OK. That makes sense. But it makes more sense to basically get these jaws into a better situation so that if down the track we're going to be straightened teeth, well, why don't we straighten all of their teeth and keep all of their teeth? You know, um, you know, it's obviously, you know, if the, the tooth is diseased, um, then, you know, there's a reason for taking it out. Um, but if it's a healthy tooth, um, it's just an abort bad jaw structure. Well, deal with the jaw structure and get the teeth then to, to um, line up nicely. And early intervention, like I said before, the sooner you find a problem, the sooner you can guide it uh, and nurture it towards a better situation for the longer term. And in those formative years, it's about jaw structure, not straight teeth. And the reason it's about jaw structure is because of the breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. David, um, that was a lot of information. And um, I would again uh, stress the importance of anyone who wants to get more information to read your book. It's very well written and it's got so much information on there. Um, David, if a parent listening tonight on this podcast uh, wants to get in touch with you to ask you a question or even to book their kid in to see you, what, what's the best way? Absolutely. So I, I have clinics uh, in Queensland and New South Wales. New South Wales not going so great at the moment, obviously, with the current climate of COVID, but that's all temporary. We're all waiting for this moment to pass some time and we'll, we'll get back on track. So the, the, probably the easiest way is through social media. And uh, the uh, the one that is, is the sort of go-to for everything uh, that then we can sort of help them forwards is Dr. David McIntosh. <coughs> and uh, so, yeah, if they look up Dr. David McIntosh, there's a Facebook page. Um, there's also Instagram as well. Um, so either either format uh, is, is readily accessible. Uh, website is relatively straightforward. It's entspecialists.com.au. And, uh, you know, through those uh, platforms, um, you know, I'm, I'm very readily accessible. And, um, you know, I just want to help people um, sort of get an understanding of this thing. And, you know, I don't necessarily have to see everyone to help everyone. Um, you know, the, the mere act of sharing knowledge and, and, and putting parents in the driving seat to be proactive about the wellness of their child um, is, 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 you know, very satisfying as well. Well, thanks very much for sharing your time. And, um Thank you very much for all the uh, kids you've helped me with. And uh, as you know, uh, I'm a firm believer that uh, unless you clear that nasal cavity, anything I do in orthodontics is probably doomed to failure. Uh, so thanks very much for looking after all those kids. And uh, I've never had one parent come back and, uh, and not say, oh, my God, that guy's amazing and I understood it and blah, blah, blah. In fact, a few of my, um, not a few, I think 10 of my students learning orthodontics I've sent to you once they've realised what's wrong and they've come back raving about that, that, that they 
uh, breathe through their nose better, they're sleeping better, and what they thought was just uh, low energy because they work so many hours is actually because they weren't sleeping well. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, well, look, I think ultimately, Derek, um, ear, nose and throat and dentistry really are the team that's needed to sort these out in the mainstay. And the, the sooner that, that we, we as, as a health community, recognise the, the, the overlapping role that we play in this, um, the, the huge benefits we're going to be able to deliver on a, on a much larger scale than, than what you and I as individuals uh, you know, can achieve. But, um, you know, it all starts somewhere. Thank you, David. Real pleasure. Thank you again. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.